Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, the podcast wherein we dissect and discuss all of the films nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. And this is our ongoing series in the 1948 films nominated for Best Picture at the 21st Academy Awards held in 1949. This week... We're talking all about Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's cinematic adaptation, and some would certainly say masterpiece, of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale, The Red Shoes. I guess we have to start as usual. Guys, had we seen this movie before? Yes, I had. Uh, I watched The Red Shoes uh, two years ago, I think. It was a part of my Criterion Challenge. I do the letterboxed thing every year where you like pick a category and you're supposed to each week watch some sort of Criterion movie that you had never seen before. I don't know what, honestly, and this isn't a joke, I think it was like films from Martin Scorsese's top 10 was the category. <laughs> and I, I chose The Red Shoes because I had heard of it and had not seen it. Um, felt like a little bit of a blind spot, so I watched it about two years ago and then again yesterday. Wait, does Letterboxd provide the categories, or does Criterion Channel themselves provide the categories? Well, Letterboxd... For, like, that challenge. Yeah, so the person says, like, week seven, a movie from Korea, but if you go to the Criterion website, you can click, like, filter by country... Right. So you don't have to just randomly like look stuff up. It's pretty I think cool. What, I think what Josh means, I don't believe it's Criterion actually establishing the... Um, the categories. The challenge. No. Right, they're not the ones establishing... Right, they're not the ones setting up the challenge. I will jump in to, uh, I actually watched this the exact same way TJ did. It was a couple of years ago. It was during, uh, it was what, 2020, 2021, somewhere, one of those two years. And I did watch this, uh, during the pandemic, uh, and have since purchased a copy. So I actually watched this just last night on, uh, on Blu-ray. Did you watch it for the first time because of the Criterion Challenge like TJ did, or just because of the pandemic and you need something to watch? Honestly, I can't remember. I'd have to go back. Um, I can't remember if I watched Because you this. also did the Criterion Challenge, I did. though, didn't you? I did. Okay. I, I can't remember if this was part of the challenge or if this was just something I checked off during the pandemic because I was home, but it was just a couple mm. years ago. Yeah. Uh, that's also why I had heard of this before. I did not watch this until a few days ago in preparation for this podcast, but uh, like you guys, I had heard of it because Martin Scorsese is, as we'll discuss, a major champion of not only this movie, The Red Shoes, but of the filmmaker's... Michael Powell and Emmer Pressburger, who I'm sorry to say I had not heard of before like this week. And uh, I think that of the three of us, I'm the least likely to <laughs> be intimately familiar with Powell and Pressburger. I'm sure you guys are a lot more familiar, as we'll discuss. But uh, yeah, check it out this week. Uh, it's good. Yeah, excited to talk about it. That's actually a decent uh, a decent introduction. Yeah, I mentioned it already, to, uh, Josh. You didn't know much about Powell and Pressburger. This is actually their 10th collaboration as co-directors um this is for anybody who's familiar with their work uh, they were known as the archers in fact that's their production company um they've been doing films for quite a while uh two i would recommend if you were if you liked this we'll obviously find out what everybody's reaction to this movie was shortly but uh the life and death of colonel blimp and uh black narcissist which came out the year before this um also two films that I would recommend. Uh, not everybody's going to love them. They're not for everyone, but uh, they are certainly both worth a watch. Um, yeah, this is... Both uh, both British-produced movies, but kind of with a global perspective, is my understanding of those two, based on a special feature I just watched about five minutes ago before we started recording. <laughs> is that fair to say? That's, uh, to a degree, yes. That, that's true. Life on Death okay. of Blimp. It follows a British officer, but it obviously takes place uh, during a couple of wars. And um, his relationship with uh, a German officer 
um, his friendship with a German officer who obviously both, they both end up on the, the opposite sides of uh, the wars. Um, then Black, Black Narcissus is India, right? Correct. Black Narcissus is, uh, is not set in Europe. It is set in a convent. And it is, if you're, if you are Catholic, like the three of us happen to be, uh, if you've heard horror stories about nuns, this film is po- quite possibly more haunting than any modern day horror movie, including The Nun. Like, Although, it's a... let me let me throw in though because I think that's a bit. I was looking so forward to Black Narcissus, and I watched it around the time I watched The Red Shoes because I was like, oh, like nun exploitation. I'm in for it, and it's kind of just like if you really let the Sound of Music play out the way the Sound of Music should have played out. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. It, I I feel like it's a the, the like scary nun thing is a little overplayed for that movie. At least I was going in expecting something different, but but regardless, uh, pa- uh, Powell and and Pressburger, uh, Martin Scorsese was a huge champion of theirs, and uh, you might say he well, he's definitely the reason I've heard of them, and I think he's maybe the reason a lot of people nowadays have heard of them is because he's uh, according to. Thelma Shoemaker, who we'll talk to in a, who talk about in a second. <laughs> who we'll talk to. She's here in the studio today. <laughs> that we'll talk about in a second. I don't have Thelma on retainer, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> That's too bad. She, she's a big get for the three of us. <laughs> well, okay. She is Scorsese's longtime editor. Yes. She's been editing his movies since the 70s, and she's won a couple Oscars editing his movies. And uh, she actually was married to Michael Powell for 10 years before he died. And so uh, Scorsese introduced Thelma and Michael Powell. And to hear Thelma say it, uh, she thinks that Powell and Pressburger are the two direct are the directors with the most influence on Scorsese's work, um, hmm. which is a big claim. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of where we're at. In Thelma's defense, she might be a little biased, but she also would know yes. better than anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> she has that's spent true. more time watching what Scorsese's filmed than literally any other living person. So, oh, she's. She's easily the person who spent the most time yes. with Scorsese and Michael Powell, like combined. Yes. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she is the she is an expert on on both of them. I'm sure. Yes, we're we're. I, I don't want to go too far down the Scorsese rabbit hole here, but there is no question Scorsese is one of their biggest proponents. Um, this was uh, the copy of the Blu-ray I have. Uh, it was a Criterion edition. They actually had just remastered this uh, about a decade and a half ago, I guess, and they actually screened this the remastered version at Cannes. Um, either 20, 2009 or 2010. And, uh, Scorsese was the principal financial backer and the, he was the principal person behind making sure that this film got remastered. And he's done that along with Thelma, uh, on several of Paul and Pressburger's movies. So yes, to say that, um, Paul and Pressburger are, if, if relevant at all in the 21st century, it is a big, there's a big, uh, big help and a big lift from Scorsese. Um, he even has a, as we were talking before the, we started uh, recording, he even has a collection of red shoe memorabilia and it runs the gamut. I'm going to make the second unbearable weight of massive talent reference in t- as many weeks, but <laughs> that underground bunker that Pedro Pascal has of Nick Cage memorabilia, Marty actually has of like the red shoes memorabilia. He he! If you're wondering what happened to the red shoes, Marty has the red All shoes. Of them. Does he? <laughs> All of so them. he has a pair. He, he has, has a pair of the titular red shoes. He has All a pair. Them. He has a he has a pair worn by Morishira in the film. Yes. <laughs> what a freak! I what a freak. I think he owns the train that runs her over. Too, like. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, spoilers. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, by the way, well, that part was. Sh- we'll, we'll get to it. That part is shocking. By me, the way, <laughs> I thought the movie was going a really different direction, and it, it instead threw itself off a balcony. We don't need it. Like, I'm did. done with this shit. We're not interested in spoiling <laughs> films for anybody. However, this is based Especially as I mentioned, 1948. Again, a story from the 1800s. <laughs> it's based, yeah. based on an 1845 fairy tale by Hans Christian Andersen. Also, also, also. Real, real quick, you hear it's a fairy tale written by Hans Christian Andersen. How do you think it's going to end? Correct. And that's how it that's ends. That's what I was it's about to say. It's like hearing it's a tragedy, a Shakespeare tragedy, and it's named after a character. You're done. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's Look, going into this, if you know the backstory, there's no doubt that this film is not going to end on a happy note. Okay? This is, uh, this is, this is a precursor to Black Swan as far as an ending that doesn't that doesn't bode well for its its lead uh T- tell us about the movie ken what is the red shoes the red shoes were introduced initially we've got uh, a young uh budding uh ballet dancer she she's uh clearly talented and and hungry for an opportunity we've got a young uh, music composer uh, about the same age as her maybe a little older but equally hungry and ambitious looking for an opportunity both end up uh, impressing and working for boris lemontov who is we assume it's a suggested russian uh ballet impresario <laughs> who, who runs his own uh, ballet company and uh they're he's a perfectionist and it's suggested so are they at least in the beginning i do like that the opening scene is a ballet performance that both uh uh vicky page who's the ballet dancer vicky? and uh julian <laughs> and julian craster who <laughs> julian craster who's the composer they're both uh audience members at in this opening scene so Correct. like they kind of a lowly station might be overselling it but like they both kind of start in inauspicious places just as an audience members and they both make their way to respectively the stage and the pit throughout the movie um vicky is at least in a box because she's with her wealthy her mom aunt. Aunt? it's her, it's her okay. aunt yeah. yeah, yes, her aunt. Vicky. Who is a she, like, who will not su- subject you to amateurs. Yes, her her aunt <laughs> but, is the classic is the classic like uh, a patron of the arts who's literally just shoveling money. Which is for how access. she's re- she's how she referred to in this first scene is she's yes. a patron of the arts. That's how. Uh, yeah. Um, but then Julian Crash was like up in the nosebleeds. He waited in line for six hours in order to get in to, and get a seat at this at, at this ballet, and didn't um, even know who the dancer was. It is possibly yeah. the least believable uh, scene in the whole movie. But the film opens with that was a my first note: horde of people, like hundreds of people, rushing into this theater to compete for for throwing elbows trying yeah and these are college kids waiting in line for six hours and then acting like animals to get a seat so they could see a ballet give me a fucking because even the 40s to quote david lynch get real (laughs) it's suggested a lot of the college students are literally students of the the man who is purportedly the composer of heart uh, what is I can't remember now the name. Whatever of the, the ballet, the ballet, part of fire. The, I think the, yeah. the, the ballet that they're there to see. The purported uh, composer of the the music is their music professor. As it turns out, he's and stolen yet. the music from Julian Craster, um, which is how Craster ends up getting in front of Lermontov in person. Lermontov impre- is impressed, hires him. Uh, he's in, he encounters Vicky as you suggested through her aunt. Is again impressed, uh, brings her on. And they end up they end up uh, producing a bunch of ballets together, including the epitomous the red shoes or the ballet of the red shoes, 
um, which Craster is the composer for and Vicky the lead. So that is where the film takes us. And there's this, there is increasingly this, this, this kind of competition over Vicky. Um, not only internally within herself, but this competition between Lermontov and Craster. Craster's falling in love with Vicky. She in love with him. Lermontov is just this obsessed, um, perfectionist who believes in nothing but the dance, nothing but the art and the music and becomes not, I wouldn't say jealous, but just yeah rageful at them or anybody well, for suggesting that love sh- could interfere possessive and domineering or yes exactly yeah so craster the composer begins to fall in love with vicky page the dancer but like lermontov is jealous of that but not because he's in love with vicky but because he kind of like you just said tj feels an ownership over her and um her dancing and thinks he he, he probably he doesn't externalize this but he probably thinks that She'd be wasting your time falling in love with Craster and just be focused on her dancing. Which we see kind of in the beginning when the, Correct. I forget her name, but the first Irina. dancer leaves the troupe to like, you know, have a baby. Like, great news. Good for her. And he's like, this simple chick. Yes, there's yeah. there's a, the film starts when Vicky and, and Julian first join Ballet Lemontov. The prima ballerina is a woman by the name of Arena. And she's apparently well, well thought of. Everyone loves her. And then suddenly, Except that yes, she's like 40 minutes late all the time. Yes, but they but they forgive her for it because she's the prima ballerina, she's the star, and she's going to leave. And of course, yes, he he's he's the only one who doesn't rush to to congratulate her <laughs> with her news. Instead, he quickly does away with her and brings in Vicky and refocuses both himself and the film on making Vicky into a star, uh, which he repeatedly promises her over and over. The idea that only he can make her a star. He's he's an he's a, a much he's a think an attractive, well dressed, um, less sexualized Harvey Weinstein, folks. This is what we're dealing with. He he <laughs> that's, cares. It's a really bad comparison. What are you doing? He cares only. What are you doing? <laughs> he he he's promising and trying to control this woman from the start. He's trying as, to turn her into a star. As uh, the, the aunt says, though, attractive brute. Uh, yes, that's what that she calls him. She says, um, yes. Early in the movie, like that opening scene we talked about, um, narratively, I thought the movie was primarily going to be about the aunt's relationship with Vicky and like, kind of like pushing her into and like profiting off of her in a way. And then vice versa, I thought it was going to be about the relationship between the maestro and uh, Craster. And that, like, you know, what do you do when the person that's kind of your teacher idol is stealing your shit? Um, but those are kind of just like... That plot line's dropped. <laughs> yes, totally. Yes. Which yeah. I, th- I thought was actually, like, could have been a really interesting place to go. But basically, Lamentoff later's like, don't worry about it. It's better to be stolen from than to have to yes. steal. Next chapter, okay. you know. Okay, okay. That line, was that foreshadowing? They, like, really highlighted that line it was the last line of a scene they went to a close-up of lermontov for it was that like a reference to how the triangle between lermontov vicky and crass will eventually play out to be stolen from versus to steal also to a degree mm. i mean he does it twice he not only steals he, he not only uh attempts or succeeds we'll get to that there's an ambiguity with the ending but um his stealing vicky but also stealing the red shoes because he owns the rights per con- per the contract and then once uh this is getting ahead of ourselves perhaps but when vicky and julian decide to leave ballet lemontoff about a third of the way through the picture um 
he he decides we're not going to perform the red shoes anymore because obviously if they perform the red shoes they have to pay craster uh royalties but he also technically craster can't take it and perform it anywhere else because under contract it's a ballet lemontoff production so he basically i guess it is a little weinstein-esque kind of yeah that's what i mean he's this he's a he's a character that is absorbed with his his power and his control now granted he is driven more by the art this this isn't pure harvey weinstein i i'm i'm exaggerating the similarities we need here. to stop making that comparison honestly <laughs> I, I don't like it well because <laughs> I, like I think comparison. i think a lot of people might get what i'm going for here though in the sense that this is a man who is well aware of his ability to control everybody who works for him everyone is constantly answering to him and that is that is the focus focal point of the this character this this boris lemontoff i don't he he's not i mean he he's he is certainly the antagonist of the film i mean do you guys disagree yeah he's, he's and he's driven he he would tell himself he's driven by the art he's driven by uh the purity of what they're doing but in fact he's just a, a domineering controlling kind of cold-hearted asshole with with a brand to protect that's right yeah mm-hmm. what i was going to say is craster comes to the way craster gets involved in this whole story is he goes to lermontoff and like says hey that music at that ballet in our opening scene was written by me, not by my teacher. So uh, what are we going to do about this? And then Lermontov just hires him on the spot. And again, that's kind of where that plot line just disappears. Basically the, the conflict that non-conflict between the teacher and Craster for stealing his work. And TJ, I agree that could have been maybe a little more interesting to see play out, but they just kind of continue not, on with the, not what the movie's about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as the resident guy who mostly watches more modern movies and isn't as familiar with the, you know, uh, older movies like you two are, uh, I see a lot of Stars Born in this, and which is, you know, both an old movie and a new movie. Uh, and also, I think Black Swan is like the most obvious comparison for like modern audiences, not just because it's about ballet, but it's also about like obsession and perfection and sacrifices to I, achieve. I was those. perfect. <laughs> I was perfect, as they say in Black Swan, as she says in Black Swan. Um... And like the ending of this, pre- previously alluded, the Hans Christian Andersen esque ending, pretty close to to Black Swan as well. So, um, but it's also like it's also kind of a Star Is Born twofold, where like uh, Lermontov takes two people from nothing to stardom, both in Craster and in, in Vicky Page, without falling in love with either. More so Vicky, but you know. Yeah, so I mean, there is just kind of a subgenre of like the obsessive. Um maestro or the obsessive producer the obsessive company owner and the way in which the complicated ties of a young talent along with yeah and rags to riches yeah the oldest story in the world you know um the performance of it i mean it's it's whiplash with more tragic yeah with that yeah yeah it's 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 big million with a lot more drama and tragedy um so what do we think Clearly, I guess I'll go first because I own a copy of this. Clearly, I quite like this movie from the first time I saw it. Um, I've I purchased the copy so that I could watch it. My uh, wife Brittany loves ballet. I was hoping this would be something she would be interested in. Uh, she actually liked it. She didn't love it, um, but we'll talk shortly after we we do the our uh, we go around and discuss our initial reactions. I guess um, there is a rather significant 17 minute uh sequence in the picture that actually follows 
The, did you say the, the picture? Yes, I did. Because now I'm, you're sounding like Marty. Yes, I'm yeah. referencing, yes. I've got Marty in my minute. head for this movie. Sequence of the picture. It's a, it's a wonderful picture. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the sequence, the actual ballet sequence from the, the ballet within the movie. And uh, it's, it's a stunning bit of, of filming. Uh, my capsule review, so to speak, is I am perhaps shamefully not as enthusiastic about this movie, and um, it's it for me falls in that category of films that I can appreciate some of the artistry and influence of, but is just so not for me. Um, I don't do well with um, kind of it's not a musical, but like music based music-centered, music-heavy films. I don't do well with dance. Um, I don't do well with British costume dramas. I don't do well with um, technicolor expressionism. I don't do well with uh, kind of melodramatic tragedy. All of these things are in here. I'm not, you know, I try to use objective descriptors there, but just to say that, like, none of those things are things that I particularly like, and they're kind of all in there, so this one's a bit of a struggle for me, um, both times that I watched it. So, sorry, I'm going to be the, the, the Philistine here this week, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough for me. I completely get your, your point. I think, though, that all of those things can work well, and I think this film does the melodrama just about as good as any film possibly can. And that technicolor expressionism you're referring to, the colors in this film are so vibrant, the passion just kind of somehow seeps through the film. It's it's hard to describe using words, but this film somehow, uh, I don't know, it, it engenders the feelings that I think Paul and Pressburg are trying to get across. No, that's, a, better, that's expressionism. Yeah, better than better. Well, better than most films uh, of this, particularly of this era, uh, can like the, the, through the use of color. They're certainly adopting Technicolor during this early stage in the '40s. They're really, really leaning into color and using it to their advantage. Um, and instead of using focusing or being so heavily reliant on shadowing and light. Uh, it's all about color, and it comes through so well that it kind of sticks with you, at least for me. Uh, I this film this this film has stuck with me both since the first time I saw it. I've watched it once since then, and then I watched it last night. And there are parts that I remember and see coming every time. Yeah. And I'm I'm sympathetic to that reading because I I think a lot of people agree with you, and it has that effect for them. So I I can see kind of how that works, but. I'm I'm leaning very subjectively here and not trying to like actually argue too much because it just the, the melodrama doesn't work for me. I mean, by about halfway through, I'm kind of like I don't really. I'm still watching, but I'm like I don't really give a damn about whether these people get married or she she like jumps in front of the train and I'm like okay, like <laughs> you know, could you have done this an hour ago? Like. <laughs> I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that I feel similarly, TJ, as you do. I think that's kind of – I'm usually the one who poo-poos the older movies. I am I'm. I think I'm the Philistine of the three of us, traditionally. Um, I liked this more than I thought I would, I guess. But uh, I liked it more than Johnny Belinda and more than Hamlet, not to spoil our, our recap episode in a few weeks. But um, I also think that there are things in this that, like, I'm, I – might have responded to more had they like played out like there is like 
some good setups here, but it, the the movie outside of the central 17-minute sequence of the ballet itself is less interesting than I want it to be, I guess. And kind of like TJ, I kind of had trouble caring <laughs> about what, what, what befated these people. Um, that said, though, like, if you... I mean, this movie is two hours and 14 minutes long. And if you told me that there's a... I had to watch a a movie about ballet from the 1940s. It's two hours and 14 minutes long. And in the middle of it, there's a 17-minute sequence of just a ballet happening. I would have been like, oh, cool, great. And it turns out that 17-minute sequence is like the best part of the movie by like far, by a long shot. Uh, some of the visuals in there are pretty striking that I want to talk about. Um, overall, though, uh, I think this is uh, – I'm more with TJ. This is a respect more than admire kind of situation. Um I'm really glad you like it, and I get why people like it, I think, but uh, maybe less for me, despite that 17-minute sequence. I am curious, really cool. picking up on something TJ referred to, when you watch the film, do you guys think she, she jumped, or or is there something else, there's some other aspect to this? Because it's suggested like shoe, she's Like shoe, shoe possession? Well, there, it's suggested she's wearing the red shoes at the time, and the red shoes... Like is she jumping? Is she is she jumping because she's lost her love? Is she jumping because she wants to get rid of the shoes, or because she was on her way to the stage and suddenly the shoes and the shoes took her <laughs> off the edge? Yes. There's this kind of yeah. killer shoes. She's she's at one point on her way to the stage and then suddenly she's out the door and on her way to the balcony. Yeah, like yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the better reading. I don't think she's like. Let's go dance this. You know what? On second thought, I would rather go off the balcony. <laughs> um, there, I think the film is definitely suggesting like the pretty heavy, and I don't mean heavy-handed. I mean just like the operative metaphor of the movie being like the way the shoes are. They encapsulate beauty and passion, but they also are this kind of like <laughs> not not like a animate object <laughs> necessarily, but they carry an enchantment to them. Uh, even if it's well, that a was the original story. That's, yeah. that's the Hans Christian Anderson story. The Hans Christian Anderson story is that a woman who puts on these red shoes and then cannot stop dancing until she dies. The red shoes make her dance herself to death. Well, it gets a little um, darker than that. If I recall, she does and get she wins to Patty's chop her, pub at the end. If, if I recall, she gets somebody to chop her feet off before uh, before that's she crazy. actually dies. And then the, sho- <laughs> then the shoes with her feet still in them continue to dance. Yes. Are you serious? Yes. Okay, is- why did that not make it into the film? <laughs> I would have watched the hell out of that. <laughs> well, I mean, after she jumps in front of the train in this, like Julian is, you know, holding her and she very weakly says, please take the red shoes off of me. And he does. And in my head, I'm like, oh, come on. Come, start dancing, shoes. Start dancing. And they didn't. To be they, fair, you know, for death scenes. Martin Scorsese just came in and scooped him up and <laughs> ran away with him, apparently. This is, this is, he was a little boy on the, on the, the train platform just waiting t- for the opportunity. Um, this, that, that scene for 1948... She's just bleeding out on that stretcher. I'm just going to throw that she out is? there. Yeah. This film, again, there's the, the technicolor use of, of emphasis on red. Press, Paul and Pressburger, we're just going to let her bleed out all over. Uh, red spots so, all over her body. I do want to say that immediately preceding this, it is like the big decision moment for her where, um, you know, Julian Julian's professes love and... Uh, uh, Lermontov, Lermontov, yeah, is like, um, no, you need to go dance, and she has a big climactic decision between love and dance, and Julian, she basically makes her decision to dance, and Julian, like, walks out the door, and immediately after, she, like, 
runs away to the balcony. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, they're going to do the trope of like running to track someone mm. down to say that you love, confess your love kind of situation, like stop them on the sidewalk. And instead, she just throws herself off a balcony in front of a train. So I was like, holy shit. This is not where I thought this was going. Um, but yeah, I'm, 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 I like being surprised. Again, Hans Christian Anderson, I shouldn't have been, but it, it seemed like they were really setting up that trope because like Julian walks out the door, they show him on the sidewalk, they show her running away from Lermontov, presumably after him, but no, it's not after him, it's after well, the balcony. And to be fair, we the, the film is foreshadowing it, we can, I guess let's dive into the ballet within the movie because that 17-minute sequence foreshadows the ending entirely. It literally, it quite literally... Um, Kind of destroys the 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 proscenium in a way by at times taking away the stage, putting us into Vicky's uh, point into her point of view because the action kind of takes place all around her and hence all around us. Then again, that 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 expressionism we were talking about earlier uh, kind of just takes over the screen. And she's being assaulted from all angles, and she's—you can see the the kind of, I don't know, pressure that's that that she's feeling uh, while she's dancing the ballet. And there is literally the struggle between the lover in the ballet and the shoemaker who's toying with the shoes, which are obviously indicative or representative of Julian on the one hand and Lermontov on the other. Um, in fact, they appear in like a vision that correct. she has. During the dance. And the famous, yeah, the famous sequence, the famous shot. Maybe the most famous single shot in this movie. Like, I I talked about how I searched this movie on Twitter just to see, like, what the populist reaction, if there is such a thing on Twitter. And most of it was just, like, people posting the screenshot of uh, Morishir. 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 Holding her hands in her hair wide-eyed looking terrified and that's like a single moment from the dance and what she's looking at in the movie is the character of like her tormentor in the ballet but in the movie like she has a vision of that guy's face turning into Lermontov and then turning into Craster so it's like a literalization of the men in her life and you know connecting the story of the ballet to her her story which I, I got into discussion with my wife last night at the time that we see that sequence she and Craster have not really fallen in love quite yet. They've just been working on this production together. They've been growing closer. And Craster has been kind of a dick. <laughs> he, he's, he's the composer, and he and she are disagreeing over tempo <laughs> during rehearsals over and over again. Not my tempo. <laughs> and that totally it totally makes sense that she's seeing both Lermontov and Craster. But of course, throughout the rest of the picture after that 17-minute sequence... He falls in love with her, and by the end of the film, despite what we knew to be of Craster, the fact that he is a music composer with ambition, he is just as driven, or it's suggested almost just as driven as she is by dance, and Lermontov potentially is by dance. Uh, he, however, abandons his brand new opera in London to go get his wife back. And it's suggested when they're falling in love, they're in the back of a carriage ride, and he's got that moment where he said when he's old, he's his favorite moment, he thinks, in his entire life may very well be in the carriage ride. Not the not the, the opera, not not any of his work, but just being on a carriage ride somewhere along the French Riviera with her in his arms. So he kind of works his way, I think, out of that tormentor role and into the lover role 
as the film continues. And then we're left with Lermontov. And literally during that 17-minute centerpiece of the film, the lover and the shoemaker at various times are literally pulling on her arms one way back and forth. And that's what we get at the end. Torn between art and love. That is kind of actually the tagline. I don't know <laughs> if it was the official tagline, but uh, on HBO Max, they had like a two-minute TCM intro. And mm-hmm. like that's basically what the intro said. Was, was it with Robert that Osborne? Whole pitch. I don't know who it was. Oh. I'm not. I'm. I'm sorry to say, I'm not a frequent TCM watcher. Which ben Mankiewicz. It was. It was going to say it was going to be Robert Osborne or Ben Mankiewicz, probably. I think I'm. I'm. I'm a bad serious film person by not watching <laughs> TCM more frequently. Yeah. Um, it to to her credit, I'll just throw this out here while we're we're talking about her. This is Moira Shearer's film debut. She was in fact a ballerina, as most of the performers. Most of the performers in the movie who are in the ballet are in fact ballerinas or cavaliers as the men I understand are called. Um, But Moira Shearer was in fact a ballerina and this is her first, uh, her first film. And I think she knocks it out of the ballpark. She's, yeah, she's quite good in it. She's very good in the film. Um, Particularly this this movie got, I think this movie got set up originally with someone else. And then I think Paul and Pressburger or someone insisted they cast an actual ballerina in the lead role. So it, the, which is a smart focus, a bit. which is a smart move because if risky one though, because how many times have we seen films and I say it's countless times and yet I'm not going to be able to name one right now where someone was chosen for their ability to dance or chosen for their ability to sing. And then you get into the acting parts and you're like, Oh, please sing or dance now. Because this is really bad. Uh, oh, I'll give you an yeah. example. The remake of Footloose, which is otherwise a masterpiece. Um, the the uh, Julian Huff. No, the uh, dude in it. Um, hey, respect Julian Huff. Was a was a uh, and I'm sorry, I, not being very respectful, just saying the dude in it. But very fine dancer, not a great actor. The Boston accent, even though he's from Boston, is really bad. Um, but my my point here being, there's a lot of examples of times where. They decide to kind of go that route, and it really, really backfires. Um, it's, tr- it's true. It's true. Were you being sarcastic, calling the Footloose remake a masterpiece, or do you actually like uh, write for that? Yeah, I was being. I was. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> okay. It's actually. It's like, actually do I need to check out the Footloose it's, remake? It's pretty enjoyable, but uh, you know, anytime you get Dennis Quaid, especially when Dennis Quaid is supposed <laughs> to be the like kind of antagonist in there, and you're like, you're gruff, but I know you can't help but love you, Dennis. Um, <laughs> Yes, it's also got early Miles Teller. <laughs> just by the way, whenever I think of of a tough, but I, I just can't help but love your role. Dennis Quaid is obviously the first person I think of, so oh, I'm yeah. glad. I'm glad they've got him in that movie to fill that role. Um, no, but Moira Shearer, to her credit, it's because she <laughs> she plays so well with the camera. She she is very well aware of the camera, and she is very 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 good at uh literally putting on a performance like she is not just a ballerina she is a screen actress in this movie absolutely yeah some of the sequences can we talk about the 17 minute ballet sequence the titular red shoes performance uh how did they do some of that like the the big moment she she jumps into the red shoes and there's like a little jump cut that's pretty cool and so Mm -hmm. i get i I get like (laughs) I mean, that's like film editing to make that look seamless, even though it doesn't really look seamless, but it still looks cool. It looks kind of stylized. Diegetically, how are they supposed to be doing that, like on the stage? That's a great question because there's there's also then dissolves and like superimpositions through right, reflections like, I, that it, like it, it looks like 
it looks like matte paintings, like kind of yeah. fade, like she's dancing on a bare stage, and then matte paintings kind of fade in around her of like curtains and stuff, and it looks really cool. And I'm not even fully sure how they did that in camera, but like again, what's the explanation for? People, people in the room watching this on stage. I'm not, try- I'm not trying to shut this down because I think it's a great question. But when I was watching both times, I, excuse me, actually, I had that thought. And then I was kind of like, you know what? I don't really care because cinematically this is working really well. And I think that that sequence is the best argument for like, why make this a movie? Um, yeah, because, yeah, I agree. because that's the one where it's like okay you couldn't do this as a play you couldn't do this at, like we're we're going to uniquely and specifically use the um vocabulary and toolbox of cinema for this and even though there's nothing in there that like we haven't seen it you know no one else does this for the next 70 years it is pretty awesome to see it employed so intentionally there. Yeah, yeah, and, and and like you said, Ken, there's like a sequence where uh, she's kind of dancing with her own reflection, but like it's too independent. It's not just a reflection of her dancing. There's like two different Moiras dancing at the same time, one in the reflection, one on stage, um, and it's it's cool. It's a, it's a cool effect, and you know, to TJ's point, probably not actually happening for the people in the room, but uh, it's cool for us. Well, it's it, it it's certainly mixing reality from. Yeah, from this yeah, yeah. this fiction and fantasy that's being created by the ballet. Um, I would go so far as to say, and this is coming from a guy, I don't love musicals, but I enjoy the MGM movies, including some of those musicals. This central number in The Red Shoes is quite easily the most beautiful and best choreographed musical number in any movie. It's pretty cool. For a guy for a guy like myself who doesn't like respond to this very much usually, it's pretty great. It and it be, I think part of it is because to TJ's point what he was just saying, uh the it is so purely cinema, cinematic. It, it's it's not trying to okay, we're just going to stick a bunch of people into the scene. We're going to have them dancing. This isn't a Gene Kelly number where the movie just stops and suddenly there's a bunch of people who know how to sing and dance the same thing. It's literally taking what the audience within the movie is supposed to be watching, removing them partially, throwing us into the, into the actual, uh, the action itself, throwing us and mixing us in with Moy, with, excuse me, Vicky, and allowing us to be a part of the action as it's happening. And the only way you can do this is with, with cinema, with a camera. And, and I think the reason that works so well too is that, it's not. It's no longer. This is what the audience that is within the, to use an, to use a serious film person word, the diegesis of the film. Right. Uh, not just something that they would yeah. see. This is something that uh, once you once you recognize. Oh wait, you wouldn't actually see this if you were in the theater. Then it's things that it's it's techniques and craft that are done specifically for you, the audience, the film audience at home, not the ballet audience. And so then it becomes, that sequence becomes not about watching a ballet as it does become about an integral moment within the text of the film. So it's no longer a movie about ballet, it's a cinematic centerpiece. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm making that point adequately, but... No, I I agree. No, yeah. I think, again, it's, it's highlighting the fact that in this moment, we're seeing Vicky both, I mean... On, on one hand, she's welcoming it. She's, this is what she's been seeking out. This is what her ambition has led her to. But she's losing herself 
into the performance and into the character, which is going to be her downfall as we proceed with the film. I mean, this is what the artistry and the obsession is leading up to. And so she's almost not even, when we're put into her point of view or in his, her situation, she's not even fully aware anymore. She ceases, the, the audience ceases to exist. The audience that is within the film, uh, or in, yeah, within the theater in the film, uh, she's just the, she becomes the character. And this is, this is the highlight of the film character, both Vicky and the, the woman in the red shoes, whatever her character's name is supposed to be within the ballet. But there's a blending and a mixing of her reality and the story within the ballet. And it's great stuff. It is. And I don't, I don't, I don't have much more to say about the red shoes beyond, uh, I liked the 17 minute sequence a lot and the rest of it was kind of just okay. What else do you have to say about it? Ken, you're the one who likes it the most. I, I do. I quite, I actually really like Anton Volberg's performance. He plays uh, Lermontov. Um, there's, yeah, he's great. There's yeah. a scene in particular that I really, really love right after uh, Craster and Vicky leave him. He's gone back to Paris and he becomes a, kind of a rage monster in his, <laughs> his office or his apartment in Paris. And there's this moment where he's uh he the camera's focused on the mirror and so we just see his reflection through the mirror as he's staring at himself and this film it should be emphasized it's it this is not um unique to this film but all of Paul and Pressburger's films um thanks to the use of technicolor there is an, a heavy emphasis on the makeup department and the use Eesh. of makeup if you Eesh. it 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 looks a little off-putting and Eesh. I'll be honest the first time I ever saw this and the life and death of Colonel Blimp, I was kind of put off by it because if you look closely enough, you can actually see the make the edge of the makeup lines around the hairline. Yeah, it looks almost like Kabuki theater. Like- yes, he's got this grayish look to him, which the more I see the film, I actually like because the man he's not really living like the the other people in the movie. I mean, the other people are wearing makeup within the play, obviously, but there's a certain kind of I don't know dreariness to Lermontov. He kind of exists on a different plane. He's just there. Okay, but then, like, the very next scene very much doesn't work for me. At least his one of his very next scenes later, where he's having to announce that she won't be dancing the part that night. I liked that scene. I was about oh to, I my gosh, but it sounds like he's, like, squeezing a shit out, or it sounds like the... <laughs> the red like, shoes! It sounds like Gene Wilder's performance in Young Frankenstein, except that that one's funny, where he's like, will never be performed again and it's like jesus guy like i know what he's trying to do but it's 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 bad and it's also like i got it and he goes on for like (laughs) another a while it's like okay i think that's maximum 40 second scenes i don't know what you're talking about how he goes on a while that's a very quick thing but what i was it's longer than the titular red shoes dance sequence (laughs) there's a good 20 minutes of him being like (laughs) What you were just alluding to is the entire movie, Lermontov is very controlled yep. and doesn't really raise his voice very much and doesn't react very big to anything. He kind of is very interior and controlled and controlling. And then this is the one sequence where he kind of like his voice is shaky and he seems to be actually affected by something. And that is because Vicky just threw himself in front of a, tra- threw himself in front of a train. So, like, I think it was an effective payoff to, like, how he's been the whole movie. It's like, the second of paper, the two. yes, but the way he's doing it doesn't work for me at all. 
Like, I, I get it, That's fair. but it's, he's just like... The scene I was talking about, he's getting angry privately in his room, and he punches the mirror. Yeah. So he, he yeah. literally breaks right. the mirror. And then at the end, yes, his voice cracking, there's visible emotion. On the one hand, you could you could argue that there's a bit of disingenuous, disingenuous uh, feeling there, because kind of like the shoemaker within the Red Shoe ba- the Red Shoes Ballet... The Thelma's I mean, shoemaker. Well, he's he's Lermontov's going to be moving on. Like he literally, they continue with the production. Which, by the way, she's still dying. For those listening in right now, if you haven't seen the film, when you get to that point, or if you've just watched it, remember Vicky's still lying out on a stretcher down on the the train platform, and he's suddenly notifying the audience. We've decided her obituary we are going forward with the production because that's what she would have wanted. And he goes to sit up in the box and he sheds a tear, but they go on with the production. Now, granted, they have a spotlight where she would normally be dancing, but you know, he, obviously, somebody else is going to take over with the red sh- and wear the red shoes at some point down the road because this is what Lermontov does. He's going to move on to the next person. And so I get TJ where... I don't think I'm, I'm as, I don't, it's not that I don't buy into it. I do, but I do get where there's a bit of, I think, a feeling of disingenuous, uh, like I said, sorrow in what he's doing in that moment. Uh, but to Josh's point, it is the only time that the other characters in the film have actually seen him visibly break. Yeah. Um, so I, just, is, I just think it's a poor performance there. That's all, that was all I meant to say. Well, you you can't you can't bet a thousand TJ. So sometimes you're just wrong. That, this is true. This is true. <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I quite. How do, we, how do we feel about how do we feel about this relative to modern Best Picture nominees, etc.? I actually quite like this. I actually really like this movie. Um, I don't know that it would be so successful. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be as successful today, I don't think. I just, I don't see it. Do you like it more or less than the movie Elvis by Baz Luhrmann? Oh, I like it mo- I like it much more than the movie Elvis by Baz Luhrmann. Oh, mama. <laughs> I've been dancing in these red shoes, mama. I, um, yeah, we... Oh, she will dance and it will be a snow job. <laughs> God. <laughs> That's, there's a haunting, uh, there's a haunting performance if there ever was one. <laughs> also how many times can you get snow job into one one script? Oh my god yeah <laughs> well tj's been dropping it in every podcast episode recently i feel like so we're gonna <laughs> that in references to unbearable weight of massive talent <laughs> yes i'm trying to keep those well, i think we're i think two each so yeah we're, yeah good we're keeping, they're neck and neck mm-hmm. um yeah but to to that said i mean we've talked about this recently there are some years where i think it's uh, were a little um a little low on films that really wow me or impress me i clearly like the red shoes better than both of you um but i think cinematically it still holds up it's still a really really well-made film um and it, it does it does suck me in so i'm i'm hard pressed to say that i don't think it holds up uh of course it it was the highest grossing film released in 1948 there's no way the red shoes is that's wild to me yes that's really wild it's i mean to be fair half of that is probably from scorsese going to repeat performances but still (laughs) it's making a lot of money in 1948 uh to your credit i think josh you pointed out before we actually recorded you read somewhere that this did play for a couple of years 
So it did have some time to make quite a bit of money. Well, what I had heard was that the rank organization who put it out initially tried to bury it a bit and um, didn't really have it like a premiere pulled from theaters very quickly. But according to Thelma Shoemaker, uh, it was seen by two American filmmakers by the names of Arthur Krim and Bob Benjamin, and they kind of championed it and got it back in theaters where it played for two full years. And a young Martin Scorsese apparently went many times. I don't remember the specifics of when they came into the picture, but um, Universal, I believe, ultimately ended up taking over distribution. So it did end up getting one of the major American studios to back its distribution in American theaters, which I certainly would have helped it get uh, more screens um, and help make it more money. But it, it, this, it is wild watching this film. What do you guys think of that for a moment? Like, do you, to, to Josh's question, and I guess coupling it with with what we're talking about the, at the moment, do you think this holds up against modern uh, Oscar films? And how do we feel about the fact that this movie was in 1948 the film that made the most money at the box office? It's. I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, it's interesting <laughs> to me that I think I'm counting five Oscar nominations for this movie. And if you had played this movie and Johnny Belinda side by side, not poo-pooing either of them, but just like in terms of the type of movie and the scope of movie and the technical prowess of them and whatnot, I would have guessed that the five versus 12 Oscar nominations would have been flipped. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. This, this wasn't even di- nominated for directing, which is kind of wild. Um, yeah. But uh, it it did win two Oscars mm-hmm, for yeah. it took score and art direction, both of which are fantastic. Uh, I'm it's it. I don't think you can. I don't. I wouldn't. I certainly can't imagine other, any other films I've seen from 1948 that work better, uh, or, or would be better for those two categories. Um, it was also nominated for editing, which makes sense. Um, screenplay, which I'm not surprised by, and of course, picture, because that's why we're talking about it. I am shocked it doesn't, I, well, I take that back. It's, it's shocking today to look back, I'd say, and, and realize that it didn't get a directing nomination. But what we were just talking about, it took a while for this movie, I think, to pick up steam in box office, or in the North American box office. So that might also explain why Paul and Pressburger are absent from a director nomination, considering the Oscars would have come early. In 49, in this movie, probably it was released, I think, in the fall of 48 in the U.S., and it, it took a little while, it sounds like, for it to actually gain in popularity. Do you guys know offhand? So, of the five movies nominated for Best Picture, four of them matched up for Best Director. This was the one that did not match up. Do you know what movie and director took its place, took its spot in the Best Director lineup? Oh, God. Uh, I've not heard of the movie. I think I've heard of the director, but I'm not really sure. 1948. Uh, 1948. What movie stole the Red Shoes' Best Director nomination by sneaking in I can without cheat. a Best Picture nomination? I can cheat and look it up, but off the top of my head, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Uh, this director made High Noon. Fred Zinneman. Oh, so Z- yeah, so it's Zinneman. Fred Zinneman for a movie called The Search. I'm not, not familiar. Not the searchers. Right, no, the that's, search. that's John Ford. Yes. I, I'm i not familiar with the search. But it is an old Freddy Z. I was never going to get the search. I've never, I don't think I've heard of the search, but you don't have to believe me. I was going to throw out Fred Zittiman just as a, because he was around, kicking around at the time as a yeah. complete guess. Yeah. But 
before we close, I do want to say that, like, you know, while I mentioned the top that I was not really familiar with Powell and Pressburger before watching the behind the scenes of this movie, but I did notice that to highlight how much of a big deal they were, the opening credits of this movie have, like, you know, a number of title cards for the opening credits, and on each title card is the titular red shoes at the bottom of the title card, and, but for for their title, for their uh, credit, it says the whole entire production written, produced, and directed by on its own title card, and then a second separate title card just for the names Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, which I thought was like uh, interesting. I don't think I've ever seen that before, where it it has on one card written, directed by, and then a a separate Mm. a separate entire card for the names. Mm -hmm. It. Again, in their defense, this is their 10th collaboration. They were very popular in Britain at the time. Yeah, I understand. Um, Very well respected in Britain. It just, I think it took a little while longer for their reputation to, I think, catch up with the European reputation here in America. Um, I mean, by by 20 years after this, college students are are clamoring to get copies of, um, like I said, Black Narcissus, this... Um, life and death of Colonel Blink, Matter of Life and Death, starring David Devins. I mean, they've got a few that um, were very, very much being watched by the uh, film students of the late 60s. And and I want to throw out, for what it's worth, after they break up, my favorite movie involving either of them is from 1960. It was Michael Powell's Peeping Tom. Peeping Tom? I which was is wondering. so different from... The red shoes. Um, it's it's the that same is year and also kind of like the same film as Psycho, but it's it's really really good. So if you haven't seen Peeping Tom, you should check that out. That was panned when it came out. People were like, "What happened to Michael Powell? He's lost all elegance, and now it's considered like a masterpiece of British film." And see Peeping Tom. That's all I got to say about that. Land the ship, Ken. Take us home. Uh, well, I mean, I think we just talked about the, we talked about the Oscars. Uh, it didn't win best picture, obviously, but Hey, it got two, it got two wins. And, uh, here we are still talking about it. I I don't think you can, I don't think you can disagree or argue that of all the films we're talking about for 1948, this one is definitely one of the probably two most, uh, talked about decades and decades later certainly one of the two most influential from this year um so it holds up in in a sense because uh you look at at filmmakers like martin scorsese francis Ford coppola steven spielberg all of them cite to this movie and it's up to viewers to watch it and yeah some you might appreciate it if you look at like the bfi lists and whatnot i think this is this is the one like if if history got rewritten i think this is the the 1948 movie, at least out of the five that we're going to watch, that it is most highly esteemed now. It is higher on the list. I would say Sierra Madre might be a little higher regarded amongst. Well, that depends, I guess. But we'll talk about that. Next. I think it depends on the I think it depends on the audience, and I would be fascinated for our discussion when we get out to Sierra Madre. Um, I I have a sense. I know how the three of us are going to come out in a discussion between the Red Shoes and Sierra Madre. Um, but generationally, it is interesting to see how influential this film was for filmmakers who are now in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, who are watching this as either teenagers or, or students. That's that's another episode. Let's not spoil that discussion. Yeah. Anything else in the Red Shoes? 
Not for me. I'm good for now. This is... Oh, actually, yes, I do have one more. <laughs> I do love the line when Caster's wandering around like, who's in charge here? And she goes, don't ask me anything. I'm just someone's mother, which doesn't count for much around here. I love that. That was great. <laughs> Sorry. You want that to be the end point of the episode? Yeah, I do. I think that that's, <laughs> I really think that's what this all was culminating to was... Um, just someone's mother and that doesn't mean much around here yeah okay. i don't know i just thought it was a great line you can cut that later if you want. it is a great line no no no. i'm not cutting that i'm leaving that in that's gonna be the, that's gonna be the end of the episode is is that line from that lady who i hope got paid sag for that one line. <laughs> <laughs> uh that's the red shoes uh ken likes it a whole lot me and tj are like yeah that was pretty good that's kind of where me and tj are i think um i don't want to speak for you and next week what do we have ken uh, next week we're moving on to the snake pit, which uh, we'll see how that discussion goes. I, I have no idea what to expect from next week's uh, episode. I think I'm, I'm, I think the most famous line from that is, "I've had enough of these mother snakes and this mother pit." <laughs> you will have to bleep that. Oh, I thought it was because uh, Tom Hanks bought a snake pit and yes. then had to put a bunch of money into it. Mm. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. It's yes. Yeah. It's the Tom Hanks and Shelley Duvall. Uh, or no, Shelley Long. Yeah, exactly. Excuse me, Shelley Long. Shelley uh, Long. Yeah. Yes, that that is correct. Is that in black and white? By the way, is the Snake Pit in black and white? Yeah. So is the Red Shoes the only is. color film from the forty? Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I will be very disappointed if there are no snakes in it. <laughs> there better be snakes. It better not be a metaphorical snake pit. I want some actual snakes in the snake pit. Knowing nothing about the movie, uh, that's what I want. So tune in again next week to find out if there are actual or metaphorical snakes in the titular snake pit, or if there's even a pit. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it could be. Uh-huh. It's existential. We're oh, we're in for we're in for it next week. So tune in because you gotta find out what is going on with snakes, folks. Goodbye. Thank Bye-bye. you. as in the red shoes. Yeah, but what Paul Pressburger did in the sequence of the red shoes